0: Bad Moon on the right, Bad Moon on the left. We have Bad Moons everywhere in the American political world. And welcome back, folks, to the Rebel Madman radio program here on Republic Broadcasting Network. Again, I would ask you folks, those of you who are able, to go to Republic Broadcasting Network uh, and make a donation, whatever you can afford. It will certainly be appreciated to keep this venue alive. It is critical, I believe, to American liberty, rightful liberty, that we have the ability to have programs like we're having here tonight. And uh, I think, uh, you know, Mark, uh, I think we kind of got to you here, and you got started on what was your awakening about the Constitution not being what you had been taught for years it was.
1: Well, you know, for me, I guess I mentioned in my introduction, I, I always kind of had this nagging feeling that something was wildly wrong, and, and I just couldn't put my finger on it. And the crowd I rang with at that time, we really weren't all that interested in, in in discovering what this gut feeling could have been. It was more about, we just got to advance the ideas, got to continue to advance the ideas, because somehow in these ideas lies the solution. But yet, I'm always dealing with this, this contradiction in my mind of, but yeah, but how many more times am I going to say something isn't constitutional? But then it happens, and then through a process that I can only I can only mildly claim to be somewhat divine, perhaps um, I wandered into this scholarly um, uh, chat room where one of the people that were there these are Christian historians that were discussing particular topics about the Constitution. One of them had thrown out this this idea that. Um, there were four delegates to the Constitutional Convention that were there who left in protest. Well, here I am. I'd never heard that before. I never, nobody ever told me there were four guys there. I mean, in fact, every story within the Christian community or the conservative community is that this thing was was largely a prayer meeting and out popped the Constitution. You know, in a very <laughs> general general sense. And uh, and of course, you know, that's what most conservatives and Christians. The idea they live on that the convention was this really sober, you know, uh, uh, event where most the wisest men amongst us met and gathered and crafted this, you know, perfectly this wonderful document called the Constitution. And so we all grew up with this kind of narrative that this was something sacred, maybe not overtly divine, they would say, but certainly, you know, heading in that direction towards divine. But it was clearly something sacred that we should revere. And lo and behold, I run into this idea that there were four guys who left in protest. Well, they had listed the names of the four men who left in protest, and I thought about starting to dig into their history, because I I now have this kind of conundrum in my mind. Well, wait a minute. If it's sacred, why would four guys be there and then leave in protest? And not only leaving protests, but write about what they saw with their own eyes. Well, once you start down that rabbit hole, you begin to realize what the convention was. And as you dig more and more, you start to find out that all of the Pennsylvania delegates were from Philadelphia. How about that? And I think four or five of them were tied to banking. And you start drawing out maps of the ratification uh, in the other states and uh, what part of the state ended up uh, carrying the weight for ratifying the Constitution? Well, it was mainly the large metropolises or those cities that are on the, were on the eastern um, coast. And, and then you dig into the Pennsylvania ratification and all the nonsense that went on there. And then you, then, then you uh, find out why the four left and what they saw with their own eyes. And you got Luther Martin using uh, terms like, yeah, they put a boot on our neck in committee. <laughs> it's like, well, so this thing wasn't quite the prayer meeting I was told it was. And instead, <laughs> it was so it was so bad that these guys said, I've had enough. I'm out of here. And I'm going to work to try to stop this doggone thing. Well, the forces that wanted a vaguely written, vaguely worded document to... Uh, to prevail, were just stronger than the truth tellers, and that's going to be the story of the of the ratification as it goes rapidly through the states. Some of the delegates aren't even able to get there uh, to vote. All the shenanigans that went on, all the backdoor payments that went on, and promises made to get the thing ratified, and then we all we we know it. You know, obviously, it comes down to. Virginia, if Virginia doesn't ratify, then the whole thing's going to fall apart anyways. But there's all kinds of shenanigans in that convention that flips Edmund Randolph, and uh, before you know it, they, they eke out a ratification there. And But you know what? I didn't know any of this, Mike. I, and Paul, I didn't know any of this growing up. I didn't realize how close the ratification vote was in Virginia when I was out there you know, shouting that's not constitutional. I, I didn't know most of the stuff that I came to learn once I found those four delegates that left uh, in protest, because once you go down that rabbit hole, you are not going to end up a constitutionalist. If you have any level of integrity in your life, there's no way to
0: hold on to it. Well, Mark, uh, please add a fifth delegate to your four. And his name, his name would be William Roosevelt Houston from Georgia. Mm. He also he also left and there was no uh, I could find nothing about why he left. And Mm -hmm. so since I now live in the county in Georgia, which bears his name, Houston County, I went to the archives of the county and I started looking through and I found some letters of his, which I intend to make public as to Ah. why he left the convention. And we're never taught about that. How many people have ever heard of William uh, <laughs> William Roosevelt Houston?
1: Right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, can you give us a little bit of a primer of what, what you found? I'm very curious.
0: Well, he was very upset with what was happening, and he based his, from what I've been able to find, I haven't been able to go through all the documents yet. There's quite a few of them. Sure. Uh, but what I have found so far the basic reason that he left was states' rights were being destroyed. The Mm -hmm. states were being made nothing. They were, as Madison had said, we'll uh, allow the states to exist as long as they are subordinately useful. Mm -hmm. So uh, that seems to be his reason, and... I am going to put uh you know put these things together I want to put them out on my Substack and I want to make great. them public uh in as many places as I possibly can.
1: Beautiful. Beautiful. That's great news.
0: Uh and uh you know we look at that and then you know the other thing I wanted to get into and I'm I'm working on that as well gentlemen is the delegates who refused to attend. Mm-hmm. And of course, yep. we know at the top of that list is Patrick Henry, who said he smelled a rat leaning toward a monarchy in Philadelphia. And how spot on was he? Yep. And then, but there are several others. There were 74 delegates actually chosen, and only 55 attended. So I started yep. thinking, why did those other people not go? Well, Richard Henry Lee, a close friend of Patrick Henry, in Virginia, and one of the first senators from the state of Virginia, uh, and he just feigned illness to keep from going. So it gets to be a very interesting story after a while. Paul, your comments, please.
2: Yeah, I was going to add. You know, as Mark was talking, and this goes back to, you know, we are trying to uh, understand where we came from as conservatives in our culture. The part of that is. Here's a fact about my life. Most of the Constitution that I've read in my life actually came after I stopped bec- uh, uh, being a constitutional conservative. <laughs> and most of the, you know, my life as a constitutional conservative consisted of mythologies that you know you you sort mm-hmm. of believe. And a, yeah, and an important yeah. mythology here is this notion of founding father, as if it is a a, a unified group of men with a unified D-ish. agenda. <laughs> yes, you know, with a, with a unified agenda. And, uh, um, and sort of this, this phrase, founding father, very conveniently clubs together or conflates men who were at odds of with each other, who had completely different views of human nature and society and civility and liberty. And I, you know, it, now in retrospect, I realize, I mean, even just, just that... Just the phrase founding fathers is so convenient to the agenda of the statists or the, you know, or, or the mm-hmm. federalists, as, as they were called before.
0: <laughs> well, as mm-hmm. uh, most people tell me when they use that phrase founding father, I say, would you please elaborate for me, please, on what they found that was lost? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and you, get think... that, you get that deer in the headlights look. Go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry, sir. No, no, not at all. I, I, I think these are, the,
1: these are the kinds of um, discussions that are necessary and, and really in, a, in an attitude of service towards our fellow conservatives that still believes the story. Because I think Paul said something really uh, enlightening. These are, you don't really start diving into the Constitution until you can accept the fact there's a problem there, because this, the stories are just easy to believe about this, about the convention, about its crafting, about why it came about. It's just easy to join. And I think there's a kind of group think psychology that goes on there, that it's too hard to raise questions of something that everybody believes is this kind of sacred notion. But then secretly, when you harbor these questions, uh, inevitably you're going to actually start digging into the facts. And then when you find the facts, you're going to wind up where we are. Otherwise, You've got some real character problems because there is such deception going on in this convention. And and you alluded to one of the facts that I didn't know until I started digging into it. The the seventy-four that were invited were like fifty-five show up and what, thirty-nine sign. Well, that's you know, barely half of the people that were invited end up uh end up signing it. Then you look at all the commissioning documents and you see the limitations that were placed on those guys there uh, in their commissioning documents, and you realize they ignored them. They didn't care about those. You know, they're they And but then you have to begin to wonder what were the conversations in the states that ended up with these guys going that on the outside they were given these commissioning statements that, that on face value apparently limited their abilities in the convention to do much. Um, three states. I think it's New York, uh, Delaware and I forgot the other one now, perhaps Virginia, but one of the, the three states that were were expressly uh prohibited from taking any action that would, you know, do more than uh you know, kind of strengthen the Articles of Confederation than the that that the Constitution at that point. Um but you see these limitations and you realize, boy, as soon as an almost quorum gets there you know, Madison's already starting to move on to uh let's establish the rules. <laughs> and their first rule is Washington's the president of the convention and then everybody else shut up and don't say anything. You can't you can't tell anybody what we're gonna do here. And without even a quorum, they're already operating, they're functioning. Um without a legitimate quorum. I mean there's some question if one if if Hamilton's there and that represents New York or not. But that's you know, that's kind of a technical question. But once you head down this road, um, and again, I want to go back to what Paul said there. I think the, 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 the human nature is to go with the group, and if the group believes this thing is sacred, it's very hard to question it. But once you do, you end up with our story, some kind of our story. It's like I had a question. I started looking into it. Oh, my goodness. It's not what I was told. Well, then you start digging more, and you realize why did I ever believe this? Why? Well, because groupthink and all kinds of social dynamics happen. And, and and most people that are in the conservative, constitutional conservative, Christian conservative movement are well-meaning people. They are the 96%. They're not the me, the 4% that has a social pathologies. Um, they're the 96%. They mean well, but we're people of stories. You know, the human mind learns So much more from stories than, you know, uh, nonfiction books that they might read. Um, And, and, you know, David Barton and, you know, all these guys running around out there, you know, telling a tall tale about about making a lot of money, (laughs) making a lot of money. Yes. It goes back to what Paul was saying earlier. There's this incentive you know, to make money uh, on this. And I don't want to reduce these guys completely to that. I think sometimes these guys just get caught up in their own stories. You know, I was reading um, William McClay's uh, notes on the first uh, Senate. He was a senator from Pennsylvania. And, boy, Mm -hmm. you read that autobiography, and they they were throwing punches in the Senate. (laughs) They went right after each other. Um, And it was combat. And, uh, you know... So this, but we're told this kind of pristine story about how God intervened over the, with the fog over the East River. And it sounds plausible enough until you find out the East River fogs over quite a bit. But but when you weave in that God sent the fog over the East River and rescued Washington's army that night at Brooklyn Heights, you know how you can, it can just tap into the soul. And it's like, yes, God did make America. See right there fog over the east river that proves it well no it doesn't prove anything it just proves that when you have a body of water that's large enough and and you send cold air over top of it you're going to end up with some fog and it's not like that's the first time the east river ever fogged over now (laughs) at the same time i want to be honest and fair and say could god have done that of course he could. But. But we, the, the, the advocates for the divine constitution within our community make it definitive. You know, it's, it's, they speak definitively. Oh, this is proof that God created America because he rolled the fog in across the East River and rescued Washington's army that was set up for a certain defeat that night. Um, and I think those stories are just so powerful, so gripping, and if the storyteller is really good, Man, he can draw an audience in. Limbaugh did this all the time. Limbaugh probably didn't know anything about the Constitution. If you'd asked him to quote Article 6, he probably couldn't have quoted it. If you asked him to quote Article 1, he probably couldn't quote it. But your admission passed into constitutional conservatism really is just to say the word Constitution. As long as you can say that, the barrier, the bar to entry is so low, as long as you can say you know, the U S constitution or that's not constitutional, then you're pretty much admitted in. And then the group dynamics are such that you're probably not going to challenge it until it just builds up in you. Like it did in me. It's like, how many more times can I shout that's not constitutional and they do it anyways. <laughs> and, and my words, my words, uh, that's not constitutional. It's totally impotent. You know, how many more times am I going to say that? And, at some point, you you just sense the intellectual inconsistency in your mind, and it grows powerful enough, you begin to ask questions, and and, and then you end up where we are.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up McClay, because uh, the majority of people uh, totally do not understand that uh, even though the first U.S. House of Representatives was public, the first uh, U.S. Senate was secret.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Fortunately, William McClay took some notes. Otherwise, (laughs) uh, without the notes of William McClay and without the letters from Richard Henry Lee and William Grayson to Patrick Henry, there would be no record of what happened in that first Senate. Right. And so so why did they want to keep it secret? And the other thing we mentioned uh, was that, uh, of course, you know, uh, George Washington was elected president of the convention and but how many people know that uh, shortly after his election they set him on a platform above everyone else in a chair and i wonder why <laughs> yeah that that uh, you know you you begin to wonder about these things and then when you really delve into this and uh you start looking at these uh, gentlemen you know one of the gentlemen that is so perplexing to me about this, about the Anti-Federalists is Luther Martin. Yes. And the fact, the fact that Luther Martin today is buried in an unmarked grave paved over for a parking lot in New York. Mm-hmm. And here is the thing, when you look at him, and I want both of you gentlemen to try to help me out with this. This, was, this is something that continues as I look at Luther Martin and his presentations. I mean, he was actually there. He was a delegate. He was jeered, he was uh, yelled at, he was blasphemed when he was speaking on multiple occasions. But even when it came to the implementation of slavery into the Constitution, he was totally against it. If you look at all of the things that Luther Martin was for, they were all moral. He Mm -hmm. stood on a moral founding, and yet I can find nothing about him that would indicate to me that he was a Christian. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I can't even... Go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I have a little quote from him in his book, uh, Secret Proceedings of the, of the Federal Constitution. He writes this as um, he describes him arriving there. He says, before I arrived, a number of rules had been adopted to regulate the proceedings of the convention. By one of which, seven states might proceed to business, and consequently, four states, the majority of that number, might eventually have agreed upon a system which was to affect the whole union. By another, the doors were to be shut, and the whole proceedings were were to be kept secret. And so far did this rule extend that we were thereby prevented from corresponding with gentlemen in different states upon the subjects under our discussion a circumstance sir which i confess i greatly regretted and here's his dripping sarcasm that comes out in so many of his writings i had no idea that all the wisdom integrity and virtue of this state or of the others were centered in the convention <laughs> i wish i had cor- i i wished to have corresponded freely and confidently with eminent political characters in my own and other states not implicitly to be dictated to uh, uh, to by them, but to give their sentiment due weight and consideration. So extremely solicitous were they that their proceedings should not transpire, that the members were prohibited from even taking copies of the resolutions on which the convention we were deliberating or extracts of any kind of the journals without formally moving and obtaining permission by a vote, of the convention for that purpose. So here Martin is explaining when he arrives there, so much has already been uh, determined. He can't take stuff with him. He's not allowed to reach out back to Maryland to get their views, the state, uh, from eminent political uh, uh, personalities there. He's not allowed to uh, correspond with them. And then he sarcastically says, "I had no idea that all the wisdom and integrity and virtue uh, of, of the states was going to be found in that convention." And so you can sense his frustration in his writing. He's 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 walked into this place and he's realized what what have I walked into? They've already the the, the, the jig is already up. They've already they've already figured out what they're going to do. And this is what ninety nine point nine percent. Of constitutional conservatives have no no view of, and yet Walter, Mar- I mean Walter Martin, uh, Luther Martin is scorned, as you said. There's a parking lot over his grave. I mean, he's he's the drug. He, you know, obviously he had a drinking problem. I don't know much about his faith background, but he was clearly one of the more moral guys there. I've often wondered if they drove him to drink, you know, or was already a habit there when he got there, but, um, uh, he's a fascinating character. He's by far my favorite delegate that was there.
0: Well, there's so little information about him out there. Um, Mark, as I'm sure you and Paul well know, and when I was on a two year contract as a consultant for the trial lawyers of Arkansas, uh, I traveled all 75 counties in Arkansas, made presentations in each county. We were fighting a an amendment uh, against the uh, that had been proposed that was completely and totally unconstitutional according to the Arkansas Constitution. So I had signed on to help fight that. But here I met I met a plethora of attorneys all over the state of Arkansas. You know, I have yet to meet one who ever heard of Luther Martin. Oh, boy. Isn't that something?
1: I'm looking at a book here I've got. It's called, uh, it's written by Bill Kaufman. It's titled uh, Forgotten Founder, Drunken Prophet, The Life of Luther Martin. Yes, good book. Yeah, good book.
0: Good book. Uh, I uh, I kind of was repulsed at his uh, use of the word drunken.
2: Uh, yeah, that yeah. that
0: kind of bothered me, but uh you know i he was known to drink and he yeah. was uh and he didn't care you know if he owed somebody money, he might not pay them on time, but he eventually paid him paid him right, and right. of course you know uh one of the things that was always significant to me, gentlemen, then I want Paul to jump in here. one of the things that was very significant to me was after the case of uh you know uh I'm trying to think now, the case in Maryland about the bank. Uh, oh, anyway. Uh, McCulloch v. Maryland. McCullough, McCullough v. Maryland. There you go. Thank you, sir. Uh, at that case, you know, uh, John Marshall was, uh, a uh, you know, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And uh, he was arguing that case in front of Marshall. And so at some point in time, Marshall tires of Martin actually showing him that what they're trying to do is totally wrong and then suddenly marshall starts lecturing luther martin marshall did and lecturing him on what uh, the founders said at the convention so luther martin takes the whole argument stands there very stoically from everything i read and then when john marshall finishes that wonderful caustic appointment of Luther Martin, he says, well, with all due respect, Mr. Chief Justice, I was there, and you were not. <laughs> That's great. But yep. uh, shortly, shortly after that, Luther Martin had a debilitating stroke. Hmm. He lost his ability to speak in, you know, in coherent sentences. But yet, even at that, he was such a Man who was so devoted to the law that he kept going and showing up at uh, court hearings and other stuff. You know, any trial that was going on, even though he was debilitated, he couldn't speak. But then I found something very remarkable, and I doubt you would ever find anybody that this would happen today. He was pretty well destitute after he stroked. And the attorneys, the Bar Association of the State of Maryland... Every attorney in the state of Maryland donated $5 a month toward his retirement. Mm. Now, you think that would ever happen today?
2: (laughs) I know. Yeah,
0: right, right.
2: Well, Paul, uh, your thoughts, please, sir. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, I think Mark and you, Mike, have uh, laid out the historical circumstances here quite beautifully. Uh, I, I am a little bit of a novice in much of the details of this history but to your question mike about the moral insight of luther martin and you know i've had the privilege of reading a lot of the anti-federalist papers uh, obviously they go by and we can guess who's who a little bit regardless coming back to the question i think uh, you know in my own journey of faith the the one thing i have realized is regardless of our self-profession as christians it it does not immediately give us, uh, you know, God does not immediately grant any of us, I don't think, uh, an immediate moral awakening into all all of moral truth. And, you know, we're all on a journey and uh, we're all, you know, growing from uh, sort of being children in understanding moral truth toward uh, understanding uh, much more of God's uh, moral revelation. And, uh, you know, as the uh, sort of uh, I'll I'll go specifically into what that relates to in my comments on Luther Martin uh, after the break here, because the flip side uh, is actually what is relevant to uh, what I wanted to say about not just Luther Martin, but many of his peers, uh, so-called anti-federalist peers and their moral insights.
0: All right. And well, here's the music. Perfect timing, Paul. How'd you do that? (laughs) We'll be back on the other side, folks. Thank you. Support RBN.
1: You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit our website. By going to RepublicBroadcasting.org.
0: February is Heart Month, and every year Extendivite has a sale. This year is no different. Extendivite is regularly $69.95 plus shipping and handling for a two month supply. In February, Extendivite is only $57.50 for a two month supply plus shipping and handling. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Extend your life with ExtendoVite.
2: Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry. It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plants. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee.
1: HempPaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over fifty dollars. See the banners for hemp paste at republicbroadcasting.org and visit hemppaste.com slash rbn.
0: Keep out odds Had would a best be on our way. Our tattered gray was torn between, if we should run a fight. But our southern pride swelled up in sight, so we dug in for the night. Then I heard a rider calling, and they're coming down the road. And the fiery flash of 20-pounders started to explode. We tried our best to stop then, but our efforts were in vain. In the distance, you could hear the sound of Dixie's last refrain. Uh, those Bluegrass guys from up there In my home country of the Appalachian Mountains Balsam Range I really love their music But uh, we need to uh, jump back in here folks And uh, let uh, Paul uh, finish his thought And then we need to bring Mark in For his comments on that thought So Paul, take it away buddy
2: certainly thank you mike and by the way on appalachian bluegrass music my daughters and i have been enjoying uh, square dancing recently and there's a lot of bluegrass there so oh yes if you got any videos i need to see that uh, yeah, i'll send you some mike uh, <laughs> okay so you know this uh on the topic of how is luther martin uh, how is his moral insight so prescient that it inspires us and you know anyone and especially christians even today when there is no real record of or evidence of his own faith necessarily, you know, I I go to the flip side of we as Christians are not necessarily already morally awakened fully. I mean, we are striving, we pray, we encourage one another. There is a flip side, and that's Romans 1, where the Apostle Paul says everything that is evident or should or should or evident about God is already evident in creation. And a part of what is evident about God or What we may know about God is his moral will or his moral law. And therefore, the blessing of understanding what is moral is not something uh, clearly that God has given as a blessing to only those who have professed faith in him. But, you know, Luther Martin and many of his anti-Federalist peers, among many such men in history, I consider among that crowd of people, uh, at the very least, who had a deep insight into uh, what is morally right and wrong, and specifically as it pertains to huge movements in culture, such as what the Constitution was.
0: Ah, very, very well said. One of the things I think, and then we're going to jump to Mark, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, one of the things that I that just really struck me when I got to reading the actual transcripts from the convention, and that was when the subject of slavery was brought forward. And none other than Luther Martin stood up and opposed it. And I loved his comment. Now, I may not have it just word for word, but in essence, what Luther Martin said was, our creator looks through the same eyes on us as he does our black brethren. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you go, where did that come from? from a drunken prophet. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it just was so telling to me. Uh, your comments on that, Paul, and then let's jump to Mark.
2: Yeah, so, no, that, that, that's, I think, what I was trying to uh, emphasize, sort of reiterating this idea that he saw clearly something in the nature of man and sort of the dignity inherent in every man, regardless of their state or social class in the society surrounding him. Uh, that he was able to make such a profound statement that, you know, it it seems obvious to us now, (laughs) hundreds of years later, but it was not obvious to the men of the day, including self-professed Christian men of the day. Oh, very much so. Mark, your comments please, sir?
1: Yeah, this is a, uh, you know, this kind of takes us into a different part of this whole dilemma we find ourselves facing at this point. It is how to judge history properly, um, but at the uh, at the same time, judge it critically um, without avoiding, you know, some of the difficulties that we have with our historical um, background. And, and and it's interesting, because this has been an attack I've been taking here lately, um, you know, trying to argue, how does man know right and wrong? How do we know that? Well, you know, I think there really is a fairly easy answer to that. I don't think it's very complex, and I think it's really found in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 that we're created in His image. And I think this is this, this discussion, I think we, you know, is there's that, is that old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And I think we're all so familiar with that term, myself included, uh, this concept of image bearing, that I don't know that we've given it enough thought to really begin to uh, use that as a framework by which we even look at history. So if we're created in God's image, if we're an image-bearer, somehow, we somehow resemble him, how do we know right and wrong? Well, part of that knowing of right and wrong really comes from uh, being an image-bearer, because God is the ultimate, obviously, uh, definition of right and wrong. And so, as an image bearer, somebody, as somebody, as people who resemble him in some way, obviously we don't resemble him physically. I don't think Paul looks like God. You know, Mike, I don't think you look like God. But somehow we resemble him. It's not physically. It's probably, it's for sure not in his divine attributes. None of us are omnipotent. None of us are omnipresent. I can't be here and, you know, in my daughter's house uh, at the same time. So we don't have his divine attributes. Then how do we resemble him? Well, I think we resemble him in love, and laughter, and care, and intellect, and thinking, and morality. I think we inherent in us do know of right and wrong, and I think this is Romans one, as Paul alluded to earlier. So then we apply that, that metric, if we will, if you will, to even the seventeenth, eighteenth centuries, and we begin to wonder why, how did Martin, how did Luther Martin figure out this is wrong? This is wrong, and I'm going to speak out against it. Well, it had to do with his image-bearing, whether or not we know his, his faith background or not. He's an image-bearer. He was created in his image. And so inherent in him was this ability to take to the floor and begin to speak out and be really what might be the end up being the, the, the prototype abolitionist, you know, being willing to speak out against the evils of the day and throughout. Human history—we've always had these people, you know, willing to stand up and speak out against the evils of the day. Unfortunately, they don't often prevail, but they do later on. Uh, in many cases, in many instances, and so it might be that even in this day, uh, God is beginning to raise up people like the very conversation we're having on this on this show today, who are willing to call out the evil of the day. Difficult because often it's a lonely position initially, for sure, and we don't, you know, know much about Luther Martin because in the end he was right. He was he was completely right about everything he was saying about the convention. Um, but in the day he wasn't right. You know the the, 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 the culture as it was just was not willing to. Side with him, and the political forces in play at that point, um, you know, relegated him to to scorn and ridicule, except for the people who knew him, as you described earlier, with the lawyers donating to his pension fund. So, you know, this is a, um, you know, when we see guys like him, I think there's lessons to learn for for those of us who are willing to speak out now to be able to say speaking out is just as important as winning in many ways because you almost can't win until people start to speak out until people start to stand up because in the end he wins i mean in the end you know his ideas about slavery win the day in the hearts mm-hmm. of many many millions of people and perhaps not in the political leadership but in the in 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 the hearts of the average person and um and I think that even as we think about our our future here, um, our ideas are going to win. Whether we live to see them is not not really important. But there always has to be this group that is willing to stand up. I mean, uh, is, do any of us think now? Does, in fact, does any constitutional conservative think or uh, think that Patrick Henry wasn't vindicated by what's what we now live with. Of course he was vindicated. Everything he said was his, all of his convention speeches are vindicated by what we're suffering through now. The very, his fear that the, that the, uh, this new general government was going to swallow the states. Well, guess what happened? <laughs> we got swallowed. And so it's like the truth tellers are just, they play this really important role, albeit a lonely one. And Martin is that, is that guy on the, in the convention. Oh, well, I mean, not just him, but others as well. Um, but there's always that group of people that emerge and begin to say, you know, something's wrong and, and maybe lonely for a while, but eventually I think we're going to win the day on this one too. I think, I think it's, I think, Moral truth is part of our design as image bearers. Yes, we're fallen, and we live in a fallen world, and so that's marred, so it's not a a perfect moral sense. But when I make the argument that the big problem with man-made government constructs is that they have a perceived legitimate right to use force to compel behavior, force up until, up and including, up to and including murder, people can begin to process that and say, "There's something wrong with that. That that shouldn't be. You know, you shouldn't be having your stuff taken from you um, because you disagree with government." There's something just morally bankrupt about that idea, uh, because in a Western democratic form. It's the majority that just hates your stuff. And so we, when we can frame the argument morally, I think we win the day. And I think in the end that's what, you know, Martin begins, and, and others were there prior to that. Um, but you really see in the abolition movement, you know, you really begin to see uh, people making profoundly contrasting moral arguments. And that's, I think, where we're at.
0: Well, very well said. Um, Now, here is something I wanted to ask you, gentlemen. Um, I believe that the people with strong moral values left the convention because they couldn't see themselves participating to the end. And as John Francis Mercer wrote to Luther Martin uh, after they left, that, uh, you know, it uh, just couldn't do it and then of course we all know about uh, or we should know I sh- shouldn't say all that was way too inclusive of uh, <laughs> you know of uh, Robert uh, Robert Yates and John Lansing Jr. Yeah. And here here were two men who eventually became the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the State of New York and of course you know uh, Robert Yates wrote as Brutus and just really went after Alexander Hamilton for what he was uh, you know, when we get to those Federalist Papers into the '60s and beyond, and then uh, go and look at the uh, reply by Brutus, it's uh, it's great. But uh, here here's a point that I've often wondered about, gentlemen, and that is, you know, I think that the moral people left, except for George Mason, Elbridge Gerry, and I, You know, an, an Edmund Randolph, until Edmund Randolph flipped. But, yep. of course, he was he was rewarded yep. by becoming the first attorney general. Uh, so, <laughs> one of the things that I wondered about as I was looking through these things, and I'd like both you gentlemen to comment on this, was at the uh, Virginia Ratification Convention and also the Pennsylvania Assembly. They both admitted that the delegates that they sent to the Constitution had, I mean, to the convention had absolutely no authority to do what they did. The, The Pennsylvania Assembly came out and said afterwards that, well, but they acted totally on their own. They did not act as the lawful representatives. And... When were we ever taught that, <laughs> that even their state said they were not, the they, that they operated on their own and outside of the parameters of which they were sent? And the delegates from the state of Maryland. Now, like John Dickinson, who actually at one time actually defended this position, but the delegates from Delaware were told by their legislature, you will agree to nothing that takes away the one-state, one-vote paradigm. And yet they did. And uh, we look at that, and then also, you know, I think it was June the 4th of 1788 at the uh, uh, ratification convention, and Patrick Henry brought up to Edmund Randolph, who was the chair at that time, and he said, I would like to see all of the documents brought forward so we can look at those before we delve into, uh, he said, I want to see the documents from the Annapolis Convention. I want to see the documents from the uh, Constitutional Convention. He said, I think all of the delegates should be able to look through these before they make a decision. And Edmund Randolph gets very upset. There were several people in their private letters thought there was going to be a duel between Randolph and Patrick Henry. And uh, Randolph says, well, it doesn't make any difference if they broke the law.
2: Yeah. Oh Yes. <laughs> Your comments, Paul? Yeah, you know, and Mark mentioned something related to this, Mike, is, you know, how the feds swallowed up the states, right? Yes. Uh, be- before I comment on the specific history here, the um, one point I wanted to bring regarding state sovereignty and state rights actually goes back to another uh, idea that I brought up earlier in this program about how a lot of the constitutional conservative movement is not informed by uh, history or even a correct understanding of the events that transpired or even the contents of the document, but by these easily believable mythologies. And mm-hmm. we talked about the founding father mythology, which clubbed together people who had... Opposing ideas. Uh, now, the other mythology, the oft-repeated slogan that, sad to say, gentlemen, I have repeated many times in my life, in my <laughs> youth, is mm. "We're not a democracy; we are a constitutional republic," as if that meant something. And, uh, I, I would, I would tell people without even knowing what the meaning of the words that I mindlessly parrot. I would say, "Oh no, the feds can't do anything that they want." You know, we are America is special because. This is the only country where states are sovereign. All 50 states are sovereign and they are um, practically like you know, independent nation states. And this is part of the other sort of mythology in, in this movement. And so after coming out of all of this, you know, and understanding the truth, and even before understanding the history, just understand, understanding the true nature of how false this idea was, simply logically, enabled me to, you know, go back to my constitutional conservative friends with this question. Okay, so, you know, okay, you, you guys say, you know, you know, there's this 10th Amendment and uh, the state sovereignty claims and so on, so on, so forth. Now, in 1787, when the Constitution was being written, many, many more than a decade after the, you know, the War of Independence, did we already have a Constitution? And secondly, was there anything in that Constitution that did not support the idea of state sovereignty that the new U.S. Constitution had had to improve upon, or did it even improve upon it, or did it make it worse? And if that's the case, how can you claim to support the idea of state sovereignty and support this newfangled innovation of the U.S. Constitution over and above the existing Constitution, which you would even admit supported the idea of state sovereignty far better, namely the Articles of Confederation. So, yeah, that's sort of responding to the points you guys were making. Well, Paul,
0: uh, here's something I don't think most people know about, and Mark, uh, is that uh, at the first Congress, when they were proposing amendments, and the amendments were being brought in, and over 200 proposed amendments were brought to the first House of Representatives, and, uh, Madison appointed a committee of seven Federalist lawyers to go through all of those amendments and, in essence, to take out anything that might shackle the government and to change the wording if they need be. Well, during this time, there was this representative from South Carolina. His name was Thomas Tudor Tucker, T-U-D-O-R, middle name. And Thomas Tudor Tucker said, look, I want to make sure that In the Tenth Amendment, that the word expressly, which comes from our uh, Articles of Confederation, Article 2, expressly delegated powers. I want that expressly put in, and he and Madison get in a big battle going back and forth. And Madison makes this classic comment, no government can be held to its delegated powers. It must always have the power of implication. Wow. that just dis- that destroyed us right there comments oh,
1: yes. mark no that's exactly and that's that that's why i bailed out on the nullification movement when i found that story it's like so every time that the supreme court rules the 10th amendment it's truism it's true i mean in the in the way the way it's currently designed um and we see this in marshall's famous um uh statement about the the elastic clause um there are implied powers there that I didn't think were there. I mean, there was a time I really thought, uh, I remember there was a senator from Nevada, I forgot his name now, who tried to get some legislation through the Senate called the Enumerated Powers Act. And the theory mm-hmm. of the legislation, was it was going to lock Congress down to the supposed 18 or 17, however you look at it, enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8. And I actually believed at that point that that was what the the powers Congress had were until you start reading what you just described and you read Marshall's elastic clause. These guys went into this knowing it was written so vaguely that there were thousands of implied powers within that document and absent any sanctions for violating the supposed enumerated powers or any template by which we were told to interpret interpret the um, enumerated powers in the constitution. Absent those two things, that thing can mean anything to anybody that's in political power. Well yet I will tell that to my Conservative friends and they will they will continue to hearken back to Article one, Section eight, the enumerated the enumerated powers. I will explain to them what you just explained, Mike. I will explain to them what Marshall said. I will explain the initial acts of, of Congress. Clearly um, suggested they didn't believe they had any in, uh, you know, limitations on their powers. <laughs> they, they got to the business right away. And yet there's this deer in the headlights. It's the power of the story they've been told. It's what Paul uh, just alluded to as the mythology they've been told. And, and it saddens me because in so many instances, I'm sure you guys have all had the same uh, problem, the deer in the headlights. It's like, or, or it's almost becomes a defensive argument. It's like, I'm going to quote a fact to you. You are then going to ignore the fact and defend the error. And I don't, the only way I've seen through that so far is to craft this into a stark Moral conflict in their mind. Because I, I've come to realize that the mythology is so entrenched that, you know, it's almost like, I mean, remember the old thing about uh, communism, it works, it just hasn't been done right yet. <laughs> well, it's almost the same thing with the Constitution. Yeah, it works, it just hasn't been done right yet. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, we don't have enough for Republicans. What's that? Or we don't have enough Republicans there yet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then when all else fails, when those arguments all fail because they're they're not serious arguments, then the the last line of defense is it's the fault of the people. The people are at fault. I mean, you could not I mean Satan could not have crafted a more ironclad, illogical defense for evil than at the end of the day, the reason it doesn't work, the Constitution, is the people. Now we are we are doing this to ourselves. It's like mm-hmm. it's mythology. If Paul's got, got to a rise, vote harder.
0: A, with that, I, I'm sorry, Mark. I said we got to vote harder. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, and and I, I I
1: feel for these people because I was one of them. And I've and I spent my days now trying to craft arguments, and I've come to realize that probably the only success I've seen has really been to make it a moral issue, uh, an issue of integrity. Um, because I think the minute I get on constitutional grounds, they almost will say, yeah, but that doesn't matter if we just get the right people in there this time. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we've had 234 years of trying to get the right people there, it hadn't worked yet, has it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> it hasn't. So, well, next time it's, it's like, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Paul. It's almost break time and uh, we'll be back on the other side, but go ahead, Paul. Till you hear the music, sir.
2: I was going to say the next time's different. This is the most important election coming up. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the music, guys. We'll be back on the other side. Support
0: RBN, please.
1: republic broadcasting network because you can handle the truth truth, 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 truth.